Hi, I'm Wadeen Koenig-Bricker. I'm an editor and author, a studier of life, a lover of cats in Egypt. And today on Curiosity Bites, we're going to be talking about Egyptology and icons and saints because of my new book, Dinner Party with the Saints. But we're also going to be talking about words and how words matter and about how your life is changed by the words you use. And we're going to touch upon current events and probably a few other things as well, like foods that might have been interesting in ancient times. Join us, stay tuned. Welcome back. Our guest on this delicious episode is Woodine. Why don't you just say it? That's it. It's Woodine Koenig Bricker. Okay. Just, just, just Woodine is fine. Just say Woodine. It's the author of somewhere around 13 books of her own, many books for other people, way more than she could possibly remember. She has edited national magazines, hundreds of articles and uh, for newspapers and magazines. She's a highly respected expert of Catholic history and of Egyptology. We've been talking about uh, about her, about uh, about saints and about our misunderstandings of who they are. And th this book she wrote, which is Dinner with the Saints, you know, where it's I started off the beginning of the series by asking, you know, if you could have dinner with somebody from history, who would it be and what would you serve them? And, you know, why saints was the question we've been dealing with in this last section. Like, well, why saints? And what we've discovered is that we've got a lot of these crazy biases. And when I say we, I'm talking about most people who've even heard the term saints, including people in the Catholic faith and people out of the Catholic faith about who a saint is and what Woodin has told us and explained to us in the in the last section was the the humanity of these people and we wanted to sort of bring that forward and she's talked about that and we're going to talk some more about some of those interesting most interesting people as being people of influence um, of their time and actually of time moving forward but before we do that this is the section where we do the mastication round do you know about the mastication round? No. Well, this is Curiosity Bites. So if you're going to bite it off, you've got to masticate. It's true. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so in the mastication round, you get to choose a number between 1 and 24. There are 24 random questions. As you pick the number, I will ask you the, the question that goes along with that. I don't guarantee it will be uh, politically correct. I don't guarantee it will be comfortable, but we'll go there. It might be. Okay. What's your number between 1 and 24? 13. 13. Number 13. Oh, okay. What is your, this is excellent for you as a writer. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Favorite word. If you had to pick a favorite word. I know my favorite swear word, and you can have that too if you like. But what's your favorite word? Um, why? Why? Because why never has an answer. If you say, why did this happen to me? There's never an answer. You can't, why doesn't ever have answers? But why leads to other questions and the other questions can lead to understanding. So when you say, why did this happen? You're led into saying, well, how did it happen? Mm -hmm. And what happened? And I think my favorite word is why, because it, it opens up all the other doors. Yeah. 
I love why too because it's it's the you know it's the birth of curiosity and without like like you've heard me say lots of times you know questions require answers and somebody ends up wrong but curiosity requires a deepening of understanding that right. is a deeper why not just the first level of why but the deeper levels of why so thank you for that i appreciate that now you can do the same again one to 24. seven number seven worst thing anyone's ever said to you you have no talent you can't write you might be able to get a job in a mail room somewhere delivering envelopes to people oh jeez wow and they told Fred Astaire he couldn't dance. <laughs> that and was they the told, worst. They told Lucille Ball she wasn't very funny. That was that was the worst thing anybody ever said to me. When was that? I was working as a copywriter for uh, a, a advertising firm, and they had decided that they wanted to hire someone else, so they fired me. And I said, "What are the grounds you're firing me for?" And they said, "You can't write. Um, you might be able to get a job in a mailroom delivering envelopes." How old were you? 23. So I'm just fascinated to know because you're a very, very accomplished writer, like insanely accomplished writer. Did that directly push you off the rails as a writer or did it make you more determined for a period at that time? I think it has always sort of um, underpinned an insecurity. Mm. And I think it's always um, made me have an element of self-sabotage mm. that I've always um, sort of refrained a little bit from venturing out into areas that I might have ventured out in otherwise because that little voice has always said you know you're just an imposter you're just you know and they're going to find you out and and this person found you out um it i i found i encountered the person much later in life and mentioned this to him and i told him that that had been the hardest thing anybody had ever said to me and he literally threw his hands up and backed across the room away from me like i don't even want to i don't even want to have anything to do with you just to, I, I just go away <laughs> i don't want to think about you anymore um which is why this new book dinner party with the saints has been so transformative for me because it's truly the first book that i ever said i don't care what people think well this book has been um what did you what's his name the the priest who was on James Martin, yeah. Jim Martin. Uh, 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 Father James Martin has given you a, a review on it, right? Yes. Yes. Now, if you don't know who he is, because I didn't know who he was until I until you told me, and then I went, "Oh yeah, I've seen him," and he's the priest who shows up on Colbert all the time. Col yeah. He's like Stephen Colbert is a Catholic, and he often will bring him on, and he, he jokes around with him and. But he was he was something else first. Also, the uh, the priest. 
he was yeah. I, if i remember correctly and i don't know his history completely i think he was like he was in the financial industry yeah, he was in like wall street it was wall street yeah he was like a hedge <laughs> like, so manager or something again, yeah so it's like very interesting that you know you're showing these other sides or the the pre-worlds of them and, and all that and that's interesting too so this book has gotten a lot of acclaim and they have even been put into the hands of a certain late night guy um possibly <laughs> we hope yeah so you know i i i it, it's interesting to me because of what you just said there about the, the, this worst thing that was ever said to you because it actually ties beautifully to what we were just talking about about this uh this saint martin um uh in peru was so badly treated and then you know gave to these wounded animals what he needed um you talked about um uh, Josephine freeing uh, female slaves and, you know, helping them to emancipate themselves because that was what she needed. And you were told this shitty message by this guy when you were in your early 20s, but you have helped other writers become writers, people who would have doubted their ability as a writer at, and helped them, you know, you've ghostwritten for them, you've co-written with them, and you've brought their words to life, you've delivered what that girl in that office on that day needed. Exactly, and I have come to realize that, yes. Isn't that beautiful? And that I mean, that is my whole work on yeah. what I do and around helping the person to just tap into what is their real soulful purpose is giving the world what it is you needed, and there's you, boom, you did it. Thank you for sharing that, I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for asking the question because that's a that's a hard question and it's a hard one to face. It's a hard one to admit, you know that, and and it's a hard one to accept how painful that kind of a statement is, and how much influence that can have on a person's life. But I like to think that I transmuted it. Well, it's become the fuel in your tank that's helped so many other people, right? So yes, it caused you horrendous pain and damage but you transformed that and transmuted it into something that would be a gift to other people and you know people who maybe didn't feel they could write were able to get there like you you know like you said you've been their very very birth mother for their books you know um, because of that so so maybe you wouldn't have had that level of compassion that level of empathy towards somebody who couldn't write like me you help me so often, you know, to take that and take what it is that I say and make it so much clearer. Um, I know I'm a great writer. I just don't know that I'm very good at English, right? You're you're <laughs> you're less wonderful at grammar. That's it. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Right. So my grammatically, I'm not that great. Um, but that's because of my education and because of my learning deficit as a kid. But I know that I can write. I just don't often know how to form it on the pages and somebody like you, you know, that's what you've done for someone like me. Because when I was, uh, the year after I fell, my buddy came from Australia and said, where's your book? And I go, I can't write. Oh. Right. And it's people like you who've made that possible for me to write all the books that I've written. So, you know, I think that it's a really wonderful term that aside, let's go back into your book. Okay. Um, because uh, you've got 
you know, some of the, some of the saints you've mentioned, uh, St. Lydia, um, Martin, Josephine, lesser known to most of us, but there are some very well-known ones. You've talked about St. Francis earlier on. Um, and then you have another one, St. Augustine. So who is a more known, uh, <laughs> even though most people outside of the Catholic faith won't know much about him. Talk to us about why, you, why he's in the book and what we might be surprised to learn. Well, Augustine has had a profound influence on the sexuality of Western culture, even mm. if you don't know who he is. Right. Because <clears throat> his, the famous line that he said is, Lord, make me chaste, but not now. Uh, that he was a, a libertine and you know, had his views on sexuality and on what sex is and how it should be used and its sinful nature have come, have pervaded much of Western civilization since his time. Mm-hmm. A couple of things people don't know about him is that he was a man of color. He, people automatically assume because he lived much of his life in Italy that he was Italian, but his mother was a Berber and his father was uh, a Roman, not an Italian, but a Roman uh, mm-hmm. from the Roman. And so he was a person of color and he himself says that he was a native son of Africa. So people don't realize that this very influential philosopher whose structure ideas about sex have come down into our culture was a man of color. The other thing is that if you look at what he has and people, you know, people have great admiration for him and people, you know, discuss endlessly, but I looked at, at him and I said, what happened? He was in love with a woman of the wrong class. Mm. And so he was in, was not allowed to marry her. So he was in a, essentially a common law marriage with her and they had a child that he adored. Um, and her for many years from it, from the time he was a young man. But his mother, who is also a saint, but I'm less fond of her, um, <laughs> decided, <laughs> decided- Thank you that- for saying that. Like, you know, I mean, I just want to put a pause there for a minute. You know, the, thank you for saying I'm less fond of her because, you know, this idea that was supposed to be, you know, Oh, about all the saints, and some of them are a bit tricky. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, she forced Augustine to leave his common law wife and wouldn't let him marry her, and arranged, forced the woman to go back to take the kid and go back to Africa, and pretty much screwed up Augustine's life from then on. She wanted wow. him to marry another woman who was of the proper class. And that woman was was a girl at the time and she had to wait several years. And so he took another mistress and that pissed his mother off. And well, the reality is that if his mother hadn't decided that he couldn't marry the woman he loved, we would have had a very different course of life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of his ideas about sex and about, you know, the that chastity is the important thing and that one should not have sex are derived from the fact that he was so deeply wounded by this, that, that his, the great love of his life was ripped away from him. And so I can see in him that he said, okay, it is better to have never loved at all. It would Mm. be better to, to be chased your whole life. 
and then to ever go through the kind of pain that I went through. And I, and then, you know, I don't want other people to go through this kind of pain. So I'm going to say, don't ever give it, get involved, which is kind of understandable, of but it also made this, this tremendous, had this tremendous impact because people didn't always know his history and they still don't always know his history. And so they often you assume that everything that a saint says is right and it isn't and some of the saints i truly believe some of the people who were who declared saints and again as you often say you know this is my opinion not the opinion of the church i think that they just needed a good therapist and some antidepressant <laughs> fantastic i love that <laughs> zoloff for the saints yeah, Zoloff, see how, let's give a little Zoloff and maybe, you know, a few therapy sessions and let's deal with our mother issues and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, move on here. Because I think that a lot of them, I'm trying to be careful how to say this so that I don't, you know, offend anyone who has deep attachment to certain of these saints, but I think that a lot of them just simply had severe issues. Mm -hmm. And that they were channeling some of their their need to work on their issues into spirituality, into religion, and kind of went over into push that into that area. And I think their lives would have been profoundly different had they had it had anybody recognized that that some of the things they did were not born out of sanctity, but were born out of pain. But, but this is again, we're back to this piece around the compartmentalizing of human beings is is somebody is all that or they're all this and you and i have had this conversation many times not about saints but about humans in that we are multifaceted that we are contradictory i wrote in my mother's eulogy that my mother was a molotov cocktail of contradictions you know uh she i can i know the things that she did not protect me from that I desperately needed her protection from that damaged me enormously. But I also remember her standing on the street when I got the day after I got another kid's dad had slapped me and she stood in the street and waited for him and punched his head so hard as he sat in his car with his window wound down that she knocked his pipe across the car and it cracked the other window. You know, it's a contradiction. She did not protect me on one side and was incredibly protective on the other you know, uh, that she was probably the funniest person I know or knew. And she was also the most diabolically depressed person I knew. You know, she was incredibly loving and she was incredibly vengeful. So, you know, and I'm not saying this to talk about my mom, I'm telling you about humans is that we are, we are complex and we're multidimensional. And if you make it to saint, it's almost like, okay, well, let's just wipe out all that and just hold on to the, you're a saint, therefore everything you say is saintly. And that might not be the case. There are two different things, Tom. There's, there's biography and there's hagiography. Biography is a person's life story. And in it, you talk about, you know, where they came from and all of those things. Hagiography is the spiritual life story. And hagiography, in my opinion, tends to get very distorted 
because the biographical material is forced into a hagiography. And the purpose of hagi hagiography is to make people as holy as we think they should be. And as holy as our definition of holiness is. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. When Mother Teresa, I happened to be watching the news when Mother Teresa died, and her doctor, who was from India, came on at the time, and the reporter said, What were Mother Teresa's last words? And he said, I can't breathe, which is completely in keeping with somebody who died of congestive heart failure. You're going to say, I can't breathe, and then go into a coma. That's probably it. Sure. Within an hour, an hour and a half, maybe, you never saw him again. And her nuns came out with this long convoluted statement about how she gave her life over to God and the order and, you know, and prayer and, uh, you know, like 15 paragraphs worth of stuff. And I can remember thinking, that's not what she said. That's not what she said. Those weren't her last words. That may have been her last statement that she wanted to have revealed and publicized, but sure. those weren't her last words. No. Her last words were, I can't breathe. And so we've, you know, so now it's gone down in, in the histories that her last words, you know, somehow she sat up in her bed and gave this long pronouncement to her nuns about, you know, the glory of what a blah, 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 blah. Well, she didn't. She didn't. She went, I can't breathe. That's it. Good night. That's it. I can't breathe. And she died. Mm. Well, does that make her any less holy? Or does it make her any less, her work any less relative? Or does it make any of the things that she did any less admirable or, or any? No, it doesn't. It doesn't do anything. It means that she was just simply a human person who couldn't breathe and died. And so that was, I think, one of the real starting points of revelation for me that I thought, wait a minute wait a minute, mm -hmm. hagiography and biography are two vastly different things. And the hagiography is another example that I will give you before we move on to another topic is um, Joseph of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Yes. And I'm sure that even non-Christians have heard, you know, Joseph was this poor carpenter, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you've heard that story. Well, first yeah. of all, there's a couple of things wrong with that. First of all, there weren't enough trees in Israel at the time for him to be a carpenter. He couldn't have possibly made a living because there weren't, they didn't build houses with trees. You know, there's only so <clears> many stools <throat> and, you know, oxbows you can make. Right. He was, and he was a tecton, which is a word that is, as I understand it, most clearly defined as like general contractor right so he and he would have been a stonemason and he would right. have worked in stone he would have worked in buildings and he was probably quite successful because they have discovered archaeologists not um you know christian but archaeologists have discovered what they think is the home of jesus in nazareth his childhood home and it's this beautifully constructed stone work in, i mean beautiful master craftsman so joseph was not this poor you know little huddling away shaving off you know pieces of wood he was probably a, a contractor with people who worked underneath him and does that change your whole image of what jesus would have grown up with was a dad who would have had a you know a crew of men working for him they probably went to caesarea philippi which was where a whole lot of construction work was going on it was just a, a short walk from where they lived and he probably had crews that were building buildings for the romans at the time Th that gives you a whole different image of who joseph was it gives you a whole different image of who mary was and a whole different image of who jesus was you know and that that is that's but that's 
because like Joseph is kind of, again, you know, we talked about Mary being barely mentioned as being much more than a vessel for which Jesus comes to and showing up after the crucifixion. You know, she's not really in there much. And Joseph is in even less. Even less. Right? Because, um, and it's pretty easy to read weird shit into that because, hold on a second, here's an old guy with a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant, and but he's never, he's married to her, but he's never been with her. It's a very, you know, weird story. And who is this Joseph bloke anyway? And he's a, apparently he's a poor carpenter because they're on a donkey sleeping in a barn. Um, but that's not the story, right? That's not, that's, not the the, that's not the story at all. Joseph, there is absolutely no evidence to say that Joseph was an old man. It's far, far more likely that he was a young man and that he and Mary were very much in love and planning to get married. And that's how it was. I mean, there's just the... <clears throat> The, the idea that Joseph was an old man came about because of the, it, it, it was uh, retrofitted, so to speak. <laughs> Joseph was retrofitted. I Joseph love that. Was, Joseph was retrofitted because the, the idea developed that Mary was a virgin and that yeah. she was a perpetual virgin. Mm -hmm. So how do you protect Mary's virginity if she's with this virile young man who's in love with her? Well, you don't. So they've decided that it, it was somewhere along the line. Someone decided, well, he was probably too old to be interested in sex. So we'll, um, make, him an, we'll make him an old dude. He's really, really old, and therefore he won't have any you know, desire for sex with Mary. And I'm like, oh, give me a break. How many, you know, how many old lechers are there in the world? This is yeah, not the, I was going to say that being old is not exclusively <laughs> separate from being a lech. <laughs> this is not going to help help matters <laughs> any. So that's how he got to be old. There's no evidence that he was old at all, none. And there's no evidence that he was poor. Um, the whole story of the donkey and the, the you know, that's another just, it's, it's a trope. And I'm sure that this is going to offend some people, but it's a trope. Right. At the time, Animals, just like they are now in the Middle East, are often brought into the lower levels of a home, especially yeah. in, in the wintertime because the heat will rise, you know, and yeah. they bring them in to protect them, and, it, and it, it actually helps heat the whole place. Well, homes were very small, mm -hmm. and so I, if Mary were going to have a baby, you know, she's she really, where is she going to have a baby? She had a choice. She could kind of have it in the middle of everybody there, you know, because they were gathered together, or you could go down into the lower area which would have not been you know the most wonderful but it would have been private it would have been secluded mm -hmm. and she could have had a baby down there and the only reason that it says that they put him in the manger is not to say oh isn't this a terrible thing but a manger was like a stone crib and so they were just kind of giving us a detail that said well she wrapped him up and when it says he's put in swaddling clothes we think okay oh poor thing he was put in swaddling clothes no what they're saying is he was a perfectly normal little kid they wrapped it's like if we said today they put him in a onesie and they put him in a bassinet right I mean, it's just what you did yeah so we don't understand those things so we've we've got joseph all messed up as an old guy and he probably wasn't and you know uh, anyway there's a whole whole lot that goes into that that's that's mythological i think and yeah, and, th and this is the interesting thing about all of this you know you've talked about these saints but the the whole thing with religious characters 
in any faith is the distinction between the mythology and the history. You know, like you talked about, you know, the biography versus the hagiography. And, and I, I think that that's part of the challenge across faiths because, you know, the, the, the term the gospel, people see that as meaning the truth. Um, but, you know, uh, you and I talked about just a, uh, in a, a section or two ago about the meeting of Antiope and Pope Constantine or Emperor Constantine and the changing of the Bible and the editing and the missing books of the Bible, Philip and, and many others, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the things that, you know, so how do you put it all together uh, and say, well, this is the truth and this is not, and this is metaphorical and this is not, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating area in and of itself is looking at what's real and what's not real. And so just, I want to take just a couple of minutes at the end of this section as we are now, because you've, you've done this dinner party with the saints, you've done, uh, and you did it, you had it with a co-author, and, you know, it's also a recipe book because it's talking about what these saints would eat because if you're having a dinner party, people have to eat. Um, how, did you, how did you come up with, with what they were going to eat? And, and why did you choose to make it a thing where the meals would be, the food would be included? Well, I am not a cook. I'm not a, I mean, I, I can cook, but I'm not like a trained cook. Right. And the... My original thought was, well, they have to bring something to this potluck. Yeah. So, well, let's let's find foods that would be uh, something that they would have eaten at the time, or that they, or with ingredients they would have eaten at the time. And and originally there was a different. Um, I had it. It was a different kind of a way that this was going to happen, and then at the end that kind of fell apart. So near the end, um, Celia is Celia Murphy is a friend of mine and our story is one of those intriguing ones. I have never met Celia in person. Mm -hmm. I have only spoken to Celia once in my life and we both were wildly crazy about the show Lost and we both had a crush on the character of Sawyer and we met online because we were involved in this kind of underground lost fandom kind of thing and that's how we became friends eons ago and I knew that she had been a professionally trained and so I mentioned that I was not quite sure what I was going to do with the recipe part of it because you know the part how I was going to do it had fallen through and so she said I'd love to help you with that because that was her passion so I said not being a fool I said oh yes that sounds like a wonderful thing to do I'll take your help and so I would provide her with um, foods. I'd say this is what they would have had. Historically, this is what would have been available to them at the time. These are the foods they would have eaten. Mm -hmm. And then I said to her, can you make something with that? 
Right. And that's what she did. And I said, I want you to opt for flavor over uh, history. So make it to be taste. And the reality is I've only tasted one of the recipes in the book, which is ironic because Celia lives in Maine and I live in Oregon. And she sent me a box of Turkish delight. She made the made Turkish delight. And so I've tasted that because it could ship. And then of course, COVID came and we closed down and, you know, then you weren't going to be cooking mass right. soups and things for people that when you're alone or isolated. So um, the recipe part of it is, to give a touchstone to, right. to, to ground people, to say, you know, these people ate, you know, they, they really did eat. And this, these are foods, <coughs> excuse me, that they, they would have had, you know, that they could have eaten, that they would have eaten. And uh, there's a running joke all the way through it that uh, John the Baptist, who is said to have existed on locusts and honey, he brings roasted locusts to this dinner party and mm -hmm. he keeps trying to get people to eat the roasted locusts mm -hmm. and everyone is demurring like oh thanks but we'll just pass on that and actually i did oh i'm so full I'm just, I'm delight. i couldn't, couldn't have another bite do another roasted locust i'm just <laughs> so full it was just it was I did taste roasted locusts, so that is the other one that I tasted because Celia did not make more locusts. And just in case you'd like to know, the ones that I tasted tasted a little bit like um, sunflower seeds, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, their little feet and their little antenna get stuck in your teeth, and so they're not the, really the bestest things to eat. They weren't that fun to eat. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but I did I, taste them. So I, I've eaten them too, and uh, they were crunchy and the only thing they tasted of was the the roasting they did um but apparently they're very very high in protein and now um just you know as a little sidebar um there is an entire market opened um for what's called cricket flour oh. and what what it is is it, it's because crickets are you know they're, they're ubiquitous they're they're everywhere and that you know, there's a lot of them they're very high in protein, and so they're they they're farming them, and turning them into a protein flour, uh, a very very high quality protein flour, and so, you know, uh, it's interesting that he ate, uh, which is, you know, it's carbohydrates from his honey and his and his yeah. protein from his locusts. Locusts, and you know they're once you get over the fact that you're eating a bug, but then if you eat a lobster or a shrimp, it's not much different. No. Yeah, I always feel like that when I'm looking at those things. Um, that's why I don't eat them, I guess. Um, but it's interesting. Um, so the recipes were, is there any direct reference to what a saint ate anywhere in the text? Or is it more in the context of the, the, the time and place? So it's at this time uh, in history, in this place where there was no direct access to ports and therefore this person would eat in this or this was on a port therefore it would be access to that a little of both is it okay there's some of it is this is what would have been eaten um like josephine bakita um, has a, a, a traditional sudanese dish because the foods that she would have had you know, we, we created, she created that. Um, another, there's one, Solanus Casey, 
who was actually very contemporary. He lived in Huntington, Indiana for a time, and I worked in Huntington, Indiana, and I used to go by his the monastery where he lived, and I actually know people who knew him. Wow. So he's the most current of them. It's, it's record that he uh, used to put all of his this sounds just awful, but he used to put all of his breakfast food into one bowl. So he'd put cereal and milk and orange juice and just all eat it out of a bowl. So I told Celia that. And so she made ice cream out of cereal milk with a honey crunch bar from from a cereal for dessert. So so part of it is, yes, we know what some of the saints ate. Right. And she made it into something that would be slightly more palatable for for modern tastes. So if there's a saint coming out of uh, the Bronx or, or, or uh, that area today, he's going to eat avocado toast. Avocado toast. There's going to be, yes, there's going to be, there's going to be. Saint Hipster. Saint Hipster. And there will be, yeah, and the miracle, one of the miracles will be that the face of Jesus will appear in the avocado. Of course. Open, take the stone out. It's like, oh my goodness. There Jesus appeared to me. I yes. feel a healing coming on. <laughs> All right. Well, we're at the end of this section. We're coming into our final section of our conversation with Woodine, and we'll be back. I hope you'll stay with us for the final part here. We're going to actually get into Woodine the writer and find out about that world and, and the evolution of her writing and where that's gone and what, what catalyzed that. This is a fascinating conversation with an amazing human being, a dear friend, and a talented writer. We hope you'll stay with us. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.